0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Good morning. Peace be with you. Um, For those of you who may not know me, my name is Cole, um, and I serve here as a church planting resident, which just means that I'm a pastor in training, uh, preparing for the work of church planting and pastoral ministry. And it really is a joy and an honor not only to welcome you here this morning, but to have the opportunity to preach the truth from God's word. Um, and so, so thank you for that opportunity. If you've been here the last couple of months, you've known that you'll know that we've been walking kind of slowly through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And in that, we've seen Paul consistently make appeals to the Corinthians toward brotherly love and unity, Uh, really under this umbrella of of the Corinthians having one big problem, and that's that the Christians in Corinth find themselves more often than not behaving more like Corinthians than like Christians, and and so this week we're going to begin diving into a a new mini-series within the larger series in which we'll see this grand theme of 1 Corinthians, of brotherly love, of unity, of having a Christian and gospel perspective rather than a Corinthian or Houstonian perspective or Western perspective on the world. But over the past couple of months, we've seen Paul talk about unity and brotherly love and a gospel perspective in regards to things that, frankly, we were probably not surprised to hear him talk about. We've seen Paul apply the gospel to worldly wisdom versus gospel wisdom. We've seen Paul apply the truth of God's word to uh, unity in regards to which teachers are we going to listen to and which teachers are we going to reject. We've seen Paul talk about unity in regards to thinkings uh, around sexuality and marriage and singleness. But over the next few weeks, we'll see Paul talking about an issue that if We aren't careful, we will be quick to dismiss. Because he will be talking about an issue that to a 21st century American seems irrelevant. And that is the issue of food that has been sacrificed to pagan gods. Like, I don't know about you, but the taco truck I frequent doesn't serve meat that's been sacrificed to pagan gods. HEB's butcher section doesn't sacrifice idol food. Like, they don't sell meat that's been sacrificed to Aphrodite or Zeus or any other pagan god. And so we'll be quick to dismiss it if we're not careful, but underneath this specific instance of the Corinthians dealing with the question of what do we do with food offered to idols are bigger questions. And really, the biggest question that lies underneath all of this is, as a Christian, to what extent will you go and sacrifice your rights and your desires for the sake of love for God and love for your brothers and sisters? Are there things or activities or pursuits that you have in your future or in your day-to-day life that you're unwilling to relinquish for God's glory or in order to love your brother or sister? And so with those questions in mind, we'll dive in right after we pray. Lord, would you come by the power of your Spirit and awaken us to your truth? Father, I ask that you would show us with clarity and precision the magnificence and beauty of your kingdom and of your gospel and of your love for us that we would be overwhelmed by. It. And that that would stir within our hearts and within this church community a desire to establish a society unlike the rest of the world has seen, one where we serve one another willingly and lovingly for your glory. So use my mouth for that purpose, use your word for that purpose, convict us of sin, and draw us nearer to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in verse 1 of chapter 8, Paul begins by saying this, he says, now concerning food offered to idols. We'll stop right there. Concerning food offered to idols. So one thing that we need to know about the context of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, is that his letter was not out of the blue. His letter is a response, which there's clues all throughout the letter that show us that this is true. His letter is a response to correspondence he's received from some of the members at the church in Corinth. They've asked him questions about things like, which teachers should we listen to? What do we do about this man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law? How should we approach sexuality and marriage and singleness? And one of the questions they asked about is, what do we do with this meat in Corinth that's been sacrificed to pagan gods? And so Paul is writing in response to their question, and we need to have some context of, of what it is they're talking about. What is this idle food that Paul talks about? Well, in, in Corinth, there's a city with a culture that is overwhelmingly operating under pagan assumptions. The worldview in Corinth is one in which we worship all of these different local gods and they have temples throughout the city that are dedicated to these different gods. Maybe Aphrodite, maybe an Egyptian god, maybe a Syrian god. And most, if not all, meat that was available to be purchased in the marketplace or eaten at restaurants or festivals had been butchered in a ceremonial and sacrificial way to one of these gods. Like you couldn't get a stake in Corinth that hadn't been offered to a pagan god. And, and moreover, at these temples that were housing pagan gods, where rituals and ceremonies and worship was performed, there were often these large banquet halls that were attached to these temples. And they would have feasts at these banquet halls in honor of these gods. And there's some historical precedent to believe that these feasts were primarily invite-only occasions. Where you would receive a a written invitation to come and dine at the table of Aphrodite. And so the Corinthians are, are living in this culture where this is what is going on. And all the meat that is available has been offered to sacrifice. To, to these gods and, and they don't know how to handle it. And there's different groups within the Corinthian church that have different opinions on how to handle it, but ultimately they're asking questions like, like, if this meat's in the marketplace, can we buy it and take it home and eat it? Or what if a non-believing friend invites us to their house and serves us food that's been offered to idols? Can we eat it then? Or Is the situation different if they've told us that this meat was offered to idols, or if they don't tell us, like, are we under obligation to ask? But for the purposes of this text, for the purposes of what Paul is talking about in chapter 8, while he'll get to all of those questions throughout the next few chapters, the question today is largely in regards to attending these feasts in the idol temples. Can I, a Christian, go to this pagan temple where there's this ritual being performed, but it's this big social occasion and it's probably the who's who of Corinth where you're moving up the social echelon by attending these feasts that you're invited to and flattered that you've been invited? Like, can I go to those? That's the question on the table. Hear what Paul says in verses 1 through 5. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So Paul has received this letter from a group of people in Corinth who, based on the way Paul will use language later, have referred to themselves as the strong in conscience. And they've referred to their brothers and sisters as the weak in conscience, and so we'll see Paul use that language of strong and weak. Let's just say that that's not Paul's language. He's using their terms in this letter. But the strong have written to Paul, and this is their argument. Paul, we're Christians, and we know good doctrine. And we know through our good doctrine that there is only one God, The creator God of the universe, the God of Israel who's manifested himself through his son Jesus to whom we have been reconciled, saved, and redeemed. And so if we go to these temple feasts to these other gods, it's of no issue because we know those gods aren't real. And we're not worshiping those gods because they have no power over us. We know they're not the real God. But this is the meat that's been offered to us. These are the invitations we're receiving. This is the way that we interact socially in the city of Corinth. And so there's no good reason that we shouldn't be able to go and dine at the table of Aphrodite because we know good and well that Aphrodite is not real and has no power. That's the argument. And what we'll see Paul do is... Say, yeah, you're right. Like, that's good doctrine. But at the heart of it, there's something else going on. Hear what Paul says in, in verses 7 through 13. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge. Right, so Paul says, I'm getting this letter from you, the strong in Corinth, And your doctrine is good, and you're right that there aren't any other gods, and you're right that they have no power. But there are some in your midst who don't quite get that. Now the strong have probably written telling Paul to say, hey Paul, why won't you just write to the weak and tell them to get over it? Like why won't you write to the weak and tell them that that they're silly for thinking these gods have any power? Like when they come to these feasts, Paul, their problem is that they think because everybody else is worshiping Aphrodite that somehow they are too. Like won't you tell them that that's absurd? Like we're going to these feasts together and and we're finding it to be totally fine because we have this good doctrine, we have this right knowledge, but these weak brothers and sisters go with us and they leave with their consciences scarred and won't you just tell them to grow up? Won't you tell him to get over it? Won't you tell him that it's okay? I have a, a good friend who is a, a very strong Christian. He's known the Lord longer than me. He probably worships more faithfully than me. And he loves the show, The Americans. He loves it. And I don't know if you're familiar with the show, but it's, it's a really interesting and intriguing television show and I watched a, a few episodes of it, and I found that I couldn't watch it. And, and the reason I couldn't watch it is because the show contains some kind of dark sexual content. And for me, a guy who's historically struggled with sexual sin, I know that if I watch that show, like, there's going to be ways in which my heart is affected by it or my thoughts are affected by it, And so I just need to avoid it altogether. But my friend watches this show in good conscience, knowing that he can separate what he sees on TV with what happens in his heart and in his brain, and he doesn't have the same history with that sin that I do, and so he watches in good conscience. Now, I would never tell him, you're wrong for doing that. But what Paul is going to address is something different. See, what I would tell him is that if we had plans on Saturday night and I was to go to his house on Saturday night and we went over and he turned on the Americans and said, hey, let's watch this. And I said, man, I'm just really not very comfortable with it. And he said, why don't you just grow up, Cole? Like, why don't you understand that this is just a show and that everything's fine? What Paul's going to say is, is that is the attitude that the Corinthians have. He goes on in verse 7, he says, But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So what is the issue here? The issue is that the strong in Corinth are claiming their rights based on good doctrine, based on their conscience, based on Christian freedoms that they have, but it's happening at the detriment of the weak. Right? And this is a very common thing to happen for a Christian. Like we get overwhelmed by this amazing grace we've been shown. We find that in the gospel economy there is no longer just lists of rules that we have to follow and things we need to avoid but real freedom to engage with the world as we see fit to the glory of God. And so then what we begin doing through our selfish human ways of operating is we begin seeing how far we can push our line out. To have as much of the things in the world that we want, that we desire, to have as much of our pursuits that we hope to accomplish within this economy of obedience and faithfulness, regardless of how that might affect our brothers and sisters. And we defend ourselves based on our Christian freedoms and rights. Like these things I want are morally neutral. Who are you to tell me I can't have them? Right? like It's not my fault. You can't disassociate the parish drinking some wine at the parish gathering from drunkenness and promiscuity. Like You need to grow up and realize that a glass of wine is fine. But what if for a brother or sister it's just not? What if it's just not? Like, I'm free to, to travel all I want, and, and the world would tell us, especially as millennials and Westerners and urbanites, that our self-worth and respectability goes up with every stamp, stamp we get on our passport, right? And so every weekend, I can be jet-setting all over the world, using all of my spare income to travel the world, but meanwhile, my neighborhood parish and my gospel family are suffering because I'm absent continually. So sure, you're free to do that, but not at the expense of your brothers and sisters. So why do we fail? Why do we have this selfishness? Well, there's a few reasons. First, we're entitled. We feel entitled to the things that we think we should be able to have. And we have good reasons as to why we should be able to have them. The Corinthians, in their knowledge, were puffed up with pride but their arrogance was their downfall. Man, I should be able to accumulate wealth through my job. Like, what's wrong if I work a lot of extra hours? Like, I'm free to do that. Like, my wife and I have figured it out. It's okay if I'm trying to seek the next promotion. It's okay if I'm always looking for the next step in the corporate ladder so that I can achieve more and more and more, but but sometimes we do that at the expense of our families or our responsibilities outside of work. It's okay for me to pursue any relationship I want. I'm entitled to these relationships, and so if I want to swipe left and swipe right every Saturday and see what happens, like I'm entitled to do that, and that, that sure, that's fine, but how is that affecting your brothers and sisters? Man, I just really, like, I want to get to a place where my wife and I can, can accumulate enough that we can go and, and settle and have our, our house in the suburbs with a big yard and a big St. Bernard and, and we can go to soccer practice all the time and that's my goal. But what about the mission of God where you are right now? So we feel entitled to the things that we think we deserve. Another reason that we fail at this is, is we operate under cultural assumptions of what is good versus gospel assumptions. The culture will tell us you deserve to be happy and to do what is best for you in really any amount of freedom that you want. Surround yourself with the people that make you happy or the people that make you better. Pursue the things that you enjoy. Spend your time how you want to spend it. Don't waste a moment. Enjoy life to its fullest. But the gospel assumption is not that I deserve happiness and whatever is best for me, but that I exist for God's glory and will serve others sacrificially. And sometimes those things work together in obedience and sometimes they're at odds. And the third main reason that we fail is because we simply see the things outside of God's kingdom And we value them more than we value the things within God's kingdom. See, for the Corinthians, a lot of them probably saw these feasts at the temple as really, really appealing. I'm going to be seen with the right people. I'm going to eat good food and drink good wine. I'm probably going to advance in my social standing it might have financial benefit for me to be seen at these things and, and that is really appealing to me. It's far more appealing than appeasing these weak brothers who just can't seem to handle it. We just value the things of, the things of our culture, the things that we can have, the things that we can own, the things that we can experience above our valuing of God's kingdom. And at the root of all of this is selfishness. At the root of all of these pursuits and desires of placing our wants, our needs, our hopes above the needs of our brothers and sisters is selfishness. And really it's selfishness that that the cause is that we've forgotten the truth of verse 6 which we conveniently skipped over so far in this text. But let's read verse 6. After Paul has said, you're right, Corinthians, there is only one God and these these idols aren't real. I get it. Here's what he says. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So there are two big truths in verse 6 that will radically change the way we view ourselves and our rights and the things that we can have and do freely. First, the text shows us that we come from God. We come from God through the creative word of God, which is the person of Jesus Christ. So God has created us through His Son, speaking us into existence and molding us out of dirt in the Garden of Eden. Like God has created us, so we come from God, through Christ. And the second big truth here is that we exist for God and His glory. And the only way in which we can exist for God and his glory is through the redemptive, reconciling, adoptive, sacrificial work of Christ on the cross. Hear it again. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. We exist for The purposes of God. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul uses the term through whom we exist not only to express that that Jesus was the creative partner in the Trinity who created us originally, but that we exist in a loving, reconciled, redemptive relationship to God through the work of Jesus and not through this knowledge that we've obtained. The Corinthians were very hung up on their knowledge and thought maybe we exist for God through our knowledge. And Paul reminds them clearly that you do not. So, the call of the text and and God's call on our lives is to lay down our rights, to lay down our freedoms, our desires, our hopes, our dreams if that means we will be loving, serving, and protecting our brothers and sisters in the faith. And this call on our lives is born out of the way God has loved us, served us, and saved us. See, we're really, really into our freedom and our liberty and our knowledge. We view those things as ultimate at times. And partially that's because we're Christians and partially that's because we're Westerners and very much so it's because we're Americans. And, and we think the ultimate good is to be free and liberated and, and to have knowledge, but who is more free and liberated than the God of the universe? Who has more knowledge than the God of the universe? Yet we are also convinced always that we should exist for love and we should be loving and that love is this chief virtue in humanity, but who is more loving than God? Yet how is it that God has expressed his love? God has expressed his love supremely to humanity by looking at his freedom from the the downfalls and the suffering of creation, his liberation from being part of creation, and he surrendered both of them. In the person of Jesus, God has surrendered all of his rights to freedom and liberty to be the strong one with knowledge to serve the weak. Jesus has come that he might serve the weak finally and fully to manifest the fullness and majesty of God's love by surrendering his rights. Ultimately, to death on the behalf of the weak. And that it's through this love of God that exists primarily through sacrifice and surrendering of rights that we are reconciled to God in eternal, joyful, just majestic relationship with Him and His people. Like the source of all of our joy is the suffering and sacrifice of our King. Like love is manifested most primarily through sacrifice. The love of God is inherently sacrificial. So, why would love for God not also be inherently sacrificial? In other words, if we're living lives that lack sacrifice, we are living lives that lack love. Paul understood this clearly. In verse 13, he says that he'll become a vegetarian if that's what it takes. I won't ever eat meat again if that's what my brothers and sisters need to know that I love them and support them and am encouraging them in the faith. And Jesus knew this well, not only through his life demonstrating it, but in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is recorded um, saying the parable that I go back to over and over and over again. Jesus said, To those listening, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Which a man found and covered up, then in his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. The kingdom of heaven is so wonderful, it's so beautiful to behold, as it's manifested in the gospel of Jesus Christ that that when we see the kingdom of heaven for what it is and God's sacrificial love for us through his son that it should compel us with such joy to give up anything and everything that we could just be a part of it. It's hidden treasure that, that we should sell everything to have. Yet we're drawing our lines of our freedoms and our liberties that you can't touch. See, human societies, apart from the gospel, are naturally dysfunctional. And they're naturally dysfunctional because if you really look at any human society, what you'll see is the weak being hurt or exploited at the expense of the strong flaunting their freedoms. Whether it's the wealthy and the poor, the white and the black, like the slave owner and the slave, like whatever it is, what we have are the strong exploiting the weak, but ever ever connected, right? Like we're not separated from each other, but the strong exploit the weak. But the kingdom of God has a different economy than the kingdom of earth. In the kingdom of God, it is built upon the strong in Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, humbly giving himself over to the benefit of the weak. In Christ, love is made known to the fullest extent and he has established a compelling, eternity-shattering, glorious society whose very law is sacrificial love. And this, this kingdom of God is so wonderful that we ought to see the redemptive work of Jesus and what we've been offered and be willing to lay down all of our rights to God and to one another in order to experience its great treasures. It's hidden treasures. The question becomes this, church. Do you individually and corporately see the works of Christ? See the reality of Christ's kingdom? The love shown in the cross and in the resurrection? The grace given to us through the sacrificial death? Do you see those things like the man who found the treasure in the field? Such that you will surrender anything and everything it takes to come and dine at your Lord's table? Or will you choose to be like the strong man in Corinth and choose to dine at the table of another God? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that by your grace and by the work of Christ that you would have the fullness of our hearts and our affections and our love and that those would be directed toward you for your glory and toward one another for our benefit and toward our community that they might be saved by your grace. Would you show us the beautiful treasures of your kingdom that we might be overwhelmed by it and run to your table this morning where your body and blood lie waiting for us to come and feast on your grace. Lord, strip everything from us that is harmful to us or to others that you might be glorified and that we might have real joy, not just temporary pleasures. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.